all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Once again, my name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF, and I have a lot to cover before I preach this morning because I'm going to be gone for a while. I'd like to have Terry Meyer and Jeremy Lyrla join me on the stage, as well as Carson Griffin. Carson, I'm going to call you up. There he is. Let's welcome these folks down. GCF is growing, in case you haven't noticed, and so we've had to make a lot of new hires. So I want to introduce some of our staff. Uh, as many of you know, Terry, raise your hand, Terry. Uh, Terry has been our administrator for uh, quite a while. Uh, Terry is going to transition, and he is going to be the new director of family life ministries at GCF, which means he's going to oversee um, nursery, children's ministry, junior high, senior high, and college ministry. So he's got his hands full this next year. But Terry uh, is really ideally suited for this job. He was in education for over 20 years. He loves high school kids, loves junior high kids, and he has a passion to disciple and train these young people. So that's Terry's new job. And we had to replace Terry. <clears throat> so uh, Jeremy, raise your hand, Jeremy. Jeremy Lyrla. Uh, Jeremy is the new administrator, which means he'll, he will uh, oversee the finances, uh, the facilities, the support staff, and many, many, many other things. It's a huge responsibility. Uh, Jeremy was a pastor for at least 10 years and has lots of advanced degrees, lots of, of organizational leadership experience, so he's going to bring a lot of skills to the table. We're very excited about having Jeremy on board. And then finally, uh, Carson Griffin is going to be our part-time intern working underneath Terry, although he is taller than Terry. <laughs> so Carson's going to help oversee the junior high ministry. So let's welcome these folks to our staff. All right, have a seat. I start my uh, study leave uh, next week, which means I will not be in the pulpit for the month of July. Um, and then also next week, we start our summer psalm series. Last summer was Psalm 1 to 10. This summer is Psalm 11 to 19 over the next roughly 10 weeks. And we've got some really good preachers lined up to come and preach the word of God to you. So on my study leave, I'm going to uh, spend a month, roughly, studying. So the plan is to read anywhere from six to eight books, pray, uh, read the Bible, and uh, see God's will for GCF. Um, next thing I want to mention is uh, July 24th is a very significant date for GCF. That is our 20th anniversary service. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, so we're, we're going to have one uh, massive combined service down at Fourth Memorial Church in central Spokane with all three of our churches together. We're expecting roughly 1,000 people. It seats, I think, 1,200, so I think we're going we're gonna to fit. But please mark your calendars for July 24th, 10.30 service time. Not 10, but 10.30. So hopefully you can all join us July 24th for that wonderful celebration. And there will be lots of hot dogs and drinks afterwards. Finally, let me just mention one more thing, and that is um, the best way to get involved in our church by far is through our small group ministries. 
We have two different types of small groups. We have community groups and we have discipleship groups. You can sign up for both today uh, by going to the lobby, clicking on one of the QR codes and getting signed up. Those all begin in September, but it really helps if we can sign up for those now so that we know how to plan, how many leaders we need, and many other details. So if you want to get involved, that is by far the best way to get involved, and you hear more about those groups as the summer uh, rolls on. Well, with that said, um, let me bow once again in prayer uh, before I preach. Father, we thank you for all the wonderful things you're doing at GCF. Thank you for these new hires. Thank you for 20 years of faithfulness to us. Father, thank you for uh, blessing this church despite the flawed leadership, including myself. Uh, We are so thankful that you have seen fit uh, to sustain us by your grace and help us to grow in so many ways. Father, now as we uh, think about the word of God, I pray that you would send your spirit Father, we pray that you would give us the gift of understanding this morning. We pray that you would help us to fall more in love with Jesus as a result of all the things that are said. And we pray these things in his name, amen. I was a history major in college back in the mid-90s. As a result, I wrote lots of research papers. And my senior year, my longest paper was a paper on George Creel, George Creel was hired by the president during World War I to uh, create a massive pro-America propaganda campaign. George Creel hired thousands of journalists and artists to make America look really good and make the Germans look really bad. So I wrote that paper and I turned it in and I got a grade back a couple weeks later. It was an okay grade, wasn't my best work, wasn't my worst work, but I turned it in. Now imagine 25 years later today, I track that paper down, and I go in and add a few paragraphs. And then I track my teacher down, and I turn it into her, and I say, would you please consider regrading this? What do you think she would say? Dave, that was 25 years ago. The deadline came and went. I gave you a grade, and that's the grade you're going to live with for all eternity. Well, that brings us to this morning's sticky text. This morning's text is John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Why is this text so sticky? This text was not part of the Bible until several centuries after the Bible was written. And so many scholars don't think this text should be in the Bible. Now, With that said, we can still learn much as we think about this sticky text this morning. What can we learn? Three points this morning. First, this text raises questions. Second, this text strengthens faith. And third, this text illustrates wonderfully truth. So first, this text raises questions. What kind of questions? First and foremost, is this text, John 7, 53, to 8, 11, sacred scripture? The answer is no. Consider these facts. This story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. Plus, none of the early church fathers comment on this passage when commenting on John. Rather, they all pass directly from John 7, 52 to 8, 12. In fact, 
The text flows very naturally from 752 to 812 without the story of the woman caught in adultery in between. And the word again in verse 12 also implies a continuity between 712, 752 and 812. In addition, no Eastern church father before the 10th century cites this text as part of the Gospel of John. Finally, this text's style and vocabulary is very different from the rest of John's Gospel. Bottom line, by the time a rogue scribe added this text to the New Testament manuscripts in the 5th century, the New Testament canon was already closed. Now, Jesus said in John 14 to 16 that he would give the apostles special ability to write the New Testament. So one of the criterias for a book to be in the New Testament canon was it was written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. This text does not meet that criteria. It was added in the fifth century. Therefore, most people do not think this text is part of the Bible. But don't just take my word for it. Which brings us to the next question, and that is simply this. What do conservative evangelical scholars say about John 753 to 811? The same thing I'm saying. In other words, I am not out on my own on some liberal branch. John Piper, not exactly a liberal, says this. I agree with the vast majority of scholars. The story of the woman taken in adultery was not in the Gospel of John. Don Carson, arguably one of the greatest New Testament scholars alive and very, very conservative, he says this, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text, NIV, or to relegate it to a footnote, RSV. The ESV also makes it very clear in the footnotes of your Bible that this text was not part of the original. The ESV Study Bible says this, therefore, it, this text should not be considered a part of Scripture and should not be used as the basis for building any point of doctrine unless confirmed in Scripture. John MacArthur, also not a liberal, <laughs> says this, this passage or the passage contains several internal and external indicators that cast doubt on its authenticity. This passage then was most likely not part of the original text of John's Gospel. One more scholar, just so you guys all know, I'm not a crazy liberal. R.C. Sproul, also a conservative who was very passionate about the inerrancy of Scripture. He says this, frankly, the best manuscripts from antiquity do not include this story in the Gospel of John. The overwhelming consensus of textual critics is that it was not part of the original Gospel of John. It is very difficult to find a conservative scholar who thinks this text should be part of the Gospel of John. Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, our pastor is a liberal. He does not have a high view of Scripture. Or, how in the world can I trust the Bible? Or, how do I know that the other stories in the Gospels are part of the Bible? Or, can I still hold firmly to my conviction that the Bible is the very words of God? Rather than destroying our confidence in the reliability of Scripture, this text actually, when understood rightly, strengthens one's confidence in the reliability of the Bible. How can I say that? That brings us to the second point. So first, this text raises questions. Second, 
This text actually strengthens faith. How does this text strengthen one's faith? It forces us to delve deeply into the discipline of textual criticism. What does that phrase mean? Textual criticism is the discipline of figuring out, by looking at thousands of manuscripts, uh, what should be included in the Bible. The vast majority of scholars agree that, when we, that we can reconstruct the very words of the Bible by looking at textual criticism, which actually strengthens faith. Well, how specifically, Dave? Let me give you several reasons. And this is going to feel more like a lecture this morning, but it's really important that you and I understand that the Bible we have is reliable, very reliable. Faith is strengthened by considering the sheer volume of New Testament manuscripts. We have over 5,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and these books range in size from a few sentences to entire books of the New Testament. But if you add to this list additional manuscripts from Coptic and Syriac and Latin, we have uh, close to 24,000 manuscripts that we can look at to figure out what should be in the New Testament. That is a massive amount of evidence. Plus, if all these manuscripts were destroyed tomorrow, we could, in, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament simply from the writings of the church fathers in the first five centuries of the church. One scholar says this, the New Testament is the best attested collection of writings from the ancient world. Hands down, it's not even close. In addition, faith is strengthened by considering the early date of the New Testament manuscripts. The earliest of these Greek manuscripts comes from the early part of the second century. That is less than 100 years after the New Testament documents were written. Let me show two images here that are really helpful for us to think about. Can you see that, kind of? I can kind of see it. So we have down here a number of New Testament manuscripts. We have Pliny the Younger, Caesar, Tacitus, Plato, Herodotus, Demosthenes and Homer. These were all manuscripts from antiquity. As you can see, uh, the number of New Testament manuscripts is overwhelmingly larger than everything else in ancient history. Close to 6,000 manuscripts. Next slide, please. Uh, this one is really encouraging. So here, we're looking at um, the distance between when the manuscripts, or the manuscripts we have, when the original document was actually written. So Homer's Iliad, uh, the document we have, um, oldest document was, is 400 years after it was written. Herodotus, 1,300 years. Thucydides, which is a history, 1,300 years, on and on and on. But the New Testament, the, the, the oldest documents we have are from within 50 years of when it was written. The New Testament is in first place for manuscript evidence. Who's the runner-up? Homer. Homer's Iliad. And speaking of the Iliad, one scholar writes, there are about... 2,500 manuscripts in existence today. The earliest of these is from 400 B.C., which sounds great until you realize that Homer wrote the Iliad around 900 B.C., a gap of 500 years. This means that if we are skeptical of the reliability of the New Testament, we must be even more skeptical about the reliability of every other document written before the printing press in 1440 A.D., one scholar writes this, that the New Testament documents have more manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, 
and more abundantly supported manuscripts than the best 10 pieces of classical literature combined. So the evidence we have for the reliability of the New Testament is overwhelming. Another scholar says this, if we're going to discount the text of the New Testament, we should shut down our classics departments in universities around the country. We would have to reject the content of most of the works we use to understand ancient history. The idea that we don't know the text of the New Testament documents is simply something close to crazy. We've got by far more manuscript evidence for the text of the New Testament than any other ancient work, and it's by miles, it's not even close. Now at this point, some folks panic when they hear we don't have copies of the original New Testament documents, but that's okay. Consider this. If for some reason tomorrow, all of America's key documents, which are stored at the National Archives, were destroyed in a fire, a flood, or a terrorist attack, would we be able to somehow recreate those documents? Of course we would. How? By reading history texts, watching documentaries on the History Channel, going to other nations and looking at their archives. In other words, we would have plenty of other resources around to compile the original text. It's the same with the New Testament. Yes, we don't have the original documents, but we have so many manuscripts, thousands of them, that we can reconstruct with great accuracy what the New Testament writers actually wrote down to the very word. Faith is also strengthened by considering the nature of New Testament manuscript variants. Let me introduce at this point Dr. Bart Ehrman. If you've heard of Dr. Bart Ehrman, raise your hand. Any of you? Okay. Uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman is a professor of religion at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and he is no friend of the Christian faith. He loves to destroy the faith of freshmen and sophomores at UNC Chapel Hill. He has a PhD in New Testament, and he loves to point out that all we have are copies of the 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 New Testament documents. And he also loves to point out that there are four to 500,000 manuscript variants in the New Testament. Let me provide some really important context for his claims. What is a variant? A variant is any alternative reading, including periods, letters, and capitalizations in the text. According to Ehrman, there are roughly three different variants for every word of the New Testament, which sounds really bad at first, doesn't it? Here's some examples of variants in the Bible. There is a Bible called the Wicked Bible, published in 1631. Why was it called the Wicked Bible? It left out the key word not in a key sentence of the Bible. Instead of saying, thou shall not commit adultery, it said, thou shall commit adultery. That's a textual variant. That key word was left out. By the way, that Bible is worth millions if you have it. There's also a Bible called the Vinegar Bible of 1717. It described the parable of the vinegar instead of the parable of the vineyard. So how should we respond to Ehrman's claims? Well, these large numbers are very misleading. Yes, there are hundreds of thousands of variants because there are thousands of manuscripts. 
the vast, vast, vast majority of textual variants are totally insignificant. In other words, they are misspelled words, words in the wrong order, use of synonyms, and they have zero effect on the meaning of the text. One author says this, Ehrman's number, however, is not based on 400,000 different instances in the Bible, but on the number of copies that have been made of whatever text he is arguing is in dispute. So, if there was a problem in Matthew 16.4, for instance, and it had been printed in 30 different original manuscripts, Ehrman counts that not as one problem, but as 30. Now, the same author uses this logic against Ehrman, and he makes this wonderful point. Another New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, points out that based on Ehrman's own logic of counting a single mistake and multiplying it by the number of times it was published, one could argue there are 1.6 million errors in the first printing of Ehrman's book. Since someone counted 16 typos that were printed 100,000 times. Christian scholars do not try to hide these variants. They're there for everyone to see. And in fact, if you open your copy of God's Word and turn to John 7, it says very, very clearly right there, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. No one is hiding these variants. And by the way, there are, there are only two major variants in the New Testament. This one and the end of Mark 16. That's it. And most scholars don't think those should be in the Bible in the first place. Because both those stories were added much, much later. So you and I should have no concern about the reliability of the Bible. Here's some more accurate numbers. According to textual critic Daniel Wallace, less than 1% of textual variants are meaningful. This means that with a tiny bit of understanding, we have moved from 500,000 variants to hundreds. And of those hundreds, None of them affect any doctrines or key facts in the Bible. Now, here's a great example of a contemporary and meaningful variant, Romans 5.1. So English translations sometimes say, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Other manuscripts from the ancient world say this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. The difference is in one single Greek letter. Should we have peace with God or strive for peace with God in light of our justification? Yes, both are true. There's no theological issue here at all. Now, I watched a debate for a class I took. I had to watch this debate I took a whole class uh, in a master's program on this issue of textual criticism. It's a fascinating class. It really built it up my faith. But I had to watch a debate between Daniel Wallace, professor at Dallas Seminary, and Bart Ehrman, professor at UNC Chapel Hill, over this very issue of textual variance. And Ehrman blustered on and on and on about hundreds of thousands of variants and copies of copies of copies, blah, blah, blah. And Wallace said at one point, okay, Dr. Ehrman, I hear hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands. Can you name just one single variant anywhere in the New Testament that has any theological significance? Please name one. Just give me one. And Ehrman hemmed and hawed for about 10 minutes and finally stated one totally theologically unsignificant 
fact about something in the Gospels. So the point is, Ehrman knows. He knows better. He just loves to sell books. And he's sold hundreds of thousands of books arguing some of these things. That have been, and there, a lot of them are New York Times bestsellers. Faith is also strengthened uh, by considering Old Testament archaeology. In 1947, a young shepherd boy was wandering around the wilderness of Palestine. His sheep were following him. He was bored to tears, so he began throwing rocks in random directions, which seems like a great way to pass the time. He threw several rocks, and then he threw one more rock up into a cave, and the rock didn't make a clattering sound. It made more of a clunking sound. And he wondered, what did I just hit? So he left his sheep, climbed up this rock wall, climbed through a little hole in the cave, and he made the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. What did he find? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these scrolls were written 2,000 years ago, and they were put in these huge clay pots to be stored uh, for posterity. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were an incredible find because they contain... Uh, I think it's 37 of the 39 Old Testament books are there in, in part. And when you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you realize the Old Testament has not changed at all in 2,000 years. It's remained the same, providing all kinds of evidence that the Old Testament is a very historically reliable document that has not been tampered with over the years. Back to the New Testament. Here's a summary of what I'm saying. One scholar says this. The bottom line is that the books of the New Testament are the most reliably copied and handed down documents in the history of the world. With a high degree of confidence, we can reconstruct the very words of the authors over 99% of the time, and the remaining 1%, we can always determine what it is the author likely wrote. In other words, we can have tremendous confidence that what we have here is the very words of God. At GCF, we believe in what is called the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Every part of the Bible is inspired. Every word of the Bible is inspired. Therefore, we affirm the doctrine of inerrancy. The Bible is without error and all that it affirms to be true. Now, it just so happens that there's two significant variants John 7, the end of Mark 16. That's not a problem, though, because most scholars don't think those should be in the Bible in the first place. So all that to say, you and I can have tremendous confidence that when we read the Bible, we are reading the very words of God. And these words have tremendous authority because they come from God. Now, why does this matter? Because you and I are staking our very lives on this book called the Bible. I sure hope that it's accurate. Because this, this book talks about how one can have all their sins forgiven, escape the flames of hell, spend all eternity with the triune God. This book describes heaven as a glorious place and hell as a horrible place. I can't think of a more important subject than talking about the reliability of this book. It really matters what you think about the Bible.
And the Bible claims for itself to be the very word of God. And I sure hope that your view of scripture is the same as Christ's view of scripture. And Christ had a very, very high view of scripture. And because he rose from the grave, we know he's God, so I hope you adopt God's view of scripture. And this will become increasingly important as our culture unravels, because there's gonna be tremendous pressure on you and me to compromise the truths of scripture. You're only gonna go to jail for preaching the gospel and saying certain things if you really believe this is the word of God. At this point, maybe you're thinking, Dave, I believe the Bible is the word of God. That's why I'm here in church. (laughs) I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible is reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. But are you living like the Bible is reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative? If the Bible is the word of God, you must read it often and read it slowly and memorize it and allow it to guide and instruct your prayers. Which raises the question, are you reading the Bible consistently? Fathers, are you reading the Bible to your family on a regular basis? That's your privilege and obligation. If an alien from outer space came and observed your family top secretly for a week. Would that alien think you have more passion for the word of God or for Netflix and Amazon Prime? Charles Spurgeon once said to his congregation in the 1860s, there is enough dust on the cover of your Bibles to spell the word damnation with your finger. Now obviously, We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not Bible reading. Aren't you glad? Even your pastor falls off the Bible reading bandwagon. But when you do, say, God, forgive me, and get back on the wagon. If you've fallen off that wagon, raise your hand. If you're not raising your hand, you're lying, okay? (laughs) All of us go through seasons where, for whatever reason, it's hard to read the Bible. And when that happens, pray, God, please change my heart. Give me more passion for the scriptures than Netflix or Amazon or golf or underwater basketball even or whatever your hobby is. Lord, change my heart. Change my heart. Give me a love for the Bible. Help me love it, read it, apply it, memorize it, meditate on it. Christianity is not a set of rules that you and I have to follow. Christianity is first and foremost a relationship with God. But if I said to you, my wife and I have a great relationship, but we never talk to each other, would would you believe me? Would you believe me? Probably not. And in some sense, how can you say that you're in a relationship with God if you never let God talk to you? The Bible is God talking to us. The Bible is the very words of God, the words of life. 
I hope and pray that this church grows corporately in their love for God's word. It's the only inspired book. It's the only book that has the words of life. No other book but this book will bring you joy and peace and lasting contentment. But Dave, the Bible bores me. The Bible has bored you, raise your hand. I'm raising two hands, okay? Keep reading it. Keep praying. Keep reading, keep praying, keep reading, keep praying. The more you read the Bible, the more you want to read. The less you read the Bible, the less you want to read the Bible. That's scary. Because eventually it's been three days, four days, seven days, ten days, three months. And your conscience becomes dulled of the things of God. We strongly advocate daily Bible reading. Make a plan. A simple plan. Commit to reading one chapter a day this summer. Read one chapter of the Gospels. Or read through Proverbs this summer. Have a plan. Stick to it. Get accountability. When you fall off the wagon, get back on the wagon. The Bible is the word of God. And it's reliable, trustworthy, true, and authoritative. First, this text raises questions. Second, this text strengthens faith ironically. And third, this text illustrates biblical truth. What in the world should we do with this text? What should a preacher do with this text? If it's not part of the Bible, I can't bind your conscience with it. And it's not part of the Bible. But with that said, most scholars agree that this event actually happened at some point in the first century, but it was not included in the canon of Scripture early on in church history. Therefore, it's not part of the Bible. But it does contain real history, and it does illustrate beautifully biblical truths. So with that said, let's read it. And I want to illustrate two glorious truths from this text. John 7, 53. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? What should we do, Jesus? This they said to test him they might have some charge to bring against him. So they're trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus encouraged stoning this woman, he would be violating Roman law. On the other hand, if he encouraged the release of this woman, he would be, appear to be condoning adultery while violating the law of Moses. So they thought they had him trapped. 6b, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, no one knows what he wrote. There's been massive amounts of speculation on what he wrote. We don't know what he wrote. We just don't know. Verse 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This text illustrates at least two truths. First truth, this story illustrates that Jesus has power to forgive. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. That word condemn is the opposite of the word to justify. To justify is to declare someone legally righteous. To condemn is to declare that they're guilty. This illustrates the truth found in Romans 8, 1 and 2, where Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you are a Christian, based on Romans 8, illustrated by John 8, you sit here this morning totally righteous. God the Father will not condemn you ever. Now, I know that many of you walk around with these huge bags of condemnation on your back. You feel guilty for the thing you did last night or 25 years ago. And you wonder, does God really forgive me? Does he love me? Does he really declare me righteous? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're placing all of your faith and trust in Jesus, it does not matter what you've done. Right now, God sees you as righteous as his own son, Jesus. Therefore, you will never, ever, ever be condemned. But Dave, I often feel condemned. Ignore your feelings. We are often way too subjective as 21st century Americans. Ignore your feelings. Root your happiness and joy in objective truth. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ took all the condemnation you deserved on the cross. He drank every last drop of the Father's cup of holy righteous wrath, which means there is no wrath remaining for you, which means you will be declared righteous no matter how you feel about that, no matter what you've done. That's because Christ died in your place. It would be unjust of God to then punish you again because he already punished all your sins in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who work really hard. That's not what Paul says. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are putting all their hope and confidence in him. That's it. We believe and we are not condemned. The story also illustrates that Jesus has power to transform. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. This illustrates the truth of Romans 6, 1 and 2, where Paul says, 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, Paul says these words after spending a lot of time, Romans 3.20 to the end of chapter 5, extolling the beauties of justification by faith alone. And you would think that if God forgives all your sins based on grace through faith, you can do whatever you want because God forgives. Why not keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means, Greek phrase there, meganoito, it's a very, very, very strong phrase, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? When Jesus forgives us, he demands, not suggests, but demands that we live holy lives. And that obedience is not the basis for our justification, that obedience proves that we are thankful to God for declaring us righteous even though we are not. We often think that salvation is merely salvation from the guilt of sin, which it is. But it's also salvation from the power of sin. When God saves you, he breaks the power of sin in you fills you with the Spirit, writes His law in your heart, motivates you by grace so that you'll live lives that are pleasing to Him because that's why He saved you. He saved you and me to receive glory through our righteousness. And again, that righteous activity in our lives is not the basis for our justification. We're declared righteous based on the life death, and resurrection of Jesus, period, end of story. But if you really understand that, if you really understand all the things that Christ has done for you, you're going to respond like this. God, wow, thank you for loving me, a sinner, so much. And because I love you, I'm going to obey your commands. The greatest motive for godliness, by far, is love. When you realize what Christ has done for you, how can you keep on sinning? He suffered and died for those sins. He was punished, beaten, and whipped for those sins. And if you love him, you'll obey his commands. Not because you have to, but because you want to. And by the way, his commands are not burdensome. I always say to my boys, boys, sin leads to sadness, and holiness always leads to happiness. When we do things God's way, it leads to flourishing, not pain and misery. And here's the best news of all. All these benefits come to us free of charge. There is nothing we can do to earn them. We simply believe. And God declares us righteous, and then he begins to transform us. Our text raises questions, our text strengthens faith, and our text illustrates truth. You can be forgiven, and you can be transformed. Let's pray together.